Welcome to Barn Blog, where our aim is to give you the best in analysis and philosophy, political economy, history, art, culture, and geopolitics from a left-wing and socialist-friendly perspective. We aim to bring you different perspectives from different walks of life and to have you educate yourself what to do with what you learn here. We do not aim to give you prefabricated and easy answers. Abandon all hope, ye who subscribe here, for you will learn, and it will be your responsibility what you do. And with that, let's begin today's episode. Hello and welcome to Varm Blog, where I talk monthly-ish to Elijah Emery, usually about Christopher Lash. And today we are talking about Christopher Lash, surprise, surprise. But we are not talking about the period of Lash, which we have been digging into for the last couple of months, which is the middle to late Lash of culture of narcissism in the middle, minimal self, late 70s, early 80s period. Today we go back to the prior decade of Lash. Um, late 60s, early 70s period through the rise and fall of the new left, which he was documenting up until um, there was nothing Haven left in a to document. World. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Haven in a heartless world where, yes, and where there's nothing left to document of the new left because it had become the very thing that he writes culture of narcissism about. But the other thing that, that these books have that the later books don't have is the clarity of being purely historical as opposed to historical theoretical the way that the two psychoanalytic books are. And in some ways, I think that's part of why they're not read as much is because they're clearer. <laughs> they, they're clearer and they seem irrelevant because they're discussing history rather than theory. But in fact, they're in many ways more relevant because they're discussing history rather than theory. Right. And they actually have, even though both these books are, are, are collections of essays, um, if you read them together and throw in new radicals in there just for fun, you would actually develop probably, I think, one of the broader spectrum views of American radicalism. There's a few other thinkers who write broad spectrum about American radicalism. Um, in fact, uh, I am literally reading one, the, you know, the intellectual origins of American radicalism, the late state and Lind, um, which is another good place to start if you are into such things. But Lash is actually really thorough and includes a kind of interesting and complicated class analysis, which is partly informed by Marxism and partly not. Um, and that's going to be relevant as we talk today. But I think one of the things that he sees that we've seen again. So let, what, let's let's frame this. 
in uh, in this period of the rise of the new left and of right wing populism like George Wallace, et cetera, who he doesn't focus that much on at the time. I think he he looms kind of hidden in the background of later Lash's writings. Um, and and Lash, looms in the background here, but he's not yeah. going into detail with. Right. Um, and Lass's uncomfortability with the with the conservatism of the 80s, which he writes quite scathingly about, um, even in the period where people think he's not critical of the right, which they just aren't reading all the essays. Um, but in this period in the late 60s, early 70s, he's watching the new left die. And he's watching, and he's trying to contextualize that to a left generation that he thinks does not know its own history, right? That it has, that it is not just disconnected from like the broader working class or broader working class movements, but he actually strongly implies in both Agony of the American Left and World of Nations that part of this is deliberately buried in the progressive movement's association with the New Deal. And that um, there was a kind of ad hoc ideology made out of New Deal progressivism that took elements of socialism, elements of of uh, of what we might call now left populism or farmers populism, elements of the prior transpartisan progressivism and elements of like managerialism and smooshed them all together uh, into a melange that I think became kind of the myth of the new deal um, that we were manicized now. And I find that interesting because we've talked about this actually a good bit that the new deal is weirdly a gaping hole in Lash's history of the left. Like he mentions it a little bit in agony of the American left and then a little bit in the beginning of world of nations. And then and just, a little bit in true and only heaven. Yeah. And a little bit in true and only heaven. But it's like something he doesn't really want to deal with in some ways, because it, in some ways it's a culmination of the death of the left that he was interested in, which is the American pre-old left and the early socialist movement, particularly the SPA, um, but also the populist movement of the late 19th century. And then he doesn't really have anything else to like compare it to till the civil rights movement, which he sees as broadly speaking a kind of righteous left populist movement that has a both a racial and a workerist origin um but again he doesn't actually say that until the 80s like he doesn't actually say that at the time very much he mostly talks about how it's insufficient in these books um which I think he's right. The, the funny thing, it's just one of the things that I, I feel interesting as we talk about these books, I'm just giving the long durée context before we go back, is is that the true and only heaven lash seems to be like, well, I was too hard on these things in the time because, oh, my God, it got so much worse. He misses the heroic age of American liberalism. Right. Um, which was what he set out to critique, basically. From his first book on the Russia on the Russian Revolution in America's response to it forward. Um, and so, you know, and he also you know, that book in True and Only Heaven, we also know that like he misses the artists in America period, which is even before his actual historical research. So it's like 
you know, the, the, that's where I think like mythic lash really comes into bear. I just loves history so much. Yeah. Um, and he does miss things. And like, if you want like more, if you want like a good history of the SPUSA or the U S socialist movement, I would say these are places to get a broad overview, but they're not a place to get like the detailed nitty gritty of what's going on. Um, you know, you actually need to read specialist histories on that, but he seems to be starting with this like failure of liberalism perceived in the sixties. And I find it interesting because we are living through another failment of, of liberalism. And this, I've been reading like Raymond uh, Goyce, Goyce, um, who also like writes about these time periods. He kind of talks about when failure of liberalism in the, and when he's coming up in the, I think fifties and sixties and in the one right now. And I find it very interesting because the current failure of liberalism is part of why lash is popular, but there's also, as we've talked about in late lash, a nostalgia for the very thing he's critiquing in these books. I think by the time we get to his last two books that were published during his lifetime, um, do you agree with me, Elijah? Like, I, yeah, I do. I mean, I think that he gets, um, I think just like the rest of the American left, he gets more, uh, there's a couple of things that change, um, which are like pretty substantial differences. And one reason why people would become more favorable toward, to this era. So in this era, there's the assumption that, um, capitalism has solved its fundamental economic, you know, contradictions. And there's going to be no more recessions and stagflation and the recessions of the early 80s or the late 70s and early 80s pretty decisively put an end to that. Right. And he so, basically buys the uh, the 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 Sweezy and Baron Marxist conception, which to defend him was near universal in the 50s and 60s. Like, yeah, this is something which is totally reasonable at the time. Um, but becomes obsolete later and is one reason for a critical reevaluation of liberalism, mm -hmm. um, which managed to, with a lot of unique conditions, deliver a much broader based economic uh, prosperity than later formulations of American capitalism did, um, which is something lurking in the background in especially actually um, revolt of the elites where Lash goes a little bit back to political economy, if he like ever did anything with it. Um, basically just to be like, huh, guys, you know, neoliberalism is really bad. Um, and so that's one reason he goes back and likes it more. Another reason is just the 80s are so bleak for the left and the 90s, the early 90s are so bleak um, that he reflects on the fact that there was a, you know, possibilities uh, available in the 60s and early 70s that were not possible later, uh, which is something he goes into in some detail here um, when he talks about especially the need for a sense of camaraderie or allyship between liberals and the left on civil liberties. Mm -hmm. um, and then I, I think those are two of the main the main things. I don't know if that answers the question. Yeah, yeah. One of the things I would actually add to that when you're reading his late writings is um... – is and even in these writings, there is some political economy, but it is always 
he's always careful with it. One, because he's, and I think this is actually a problem of field of study and, uh, uh, Shalom Bentine and I argue about this all the time because she's also a cultural historian and, you know, I'm not, but, uh, I, I talk about, well, Lash doesn't think most dialecticians, particularly most Marxists have a rich understanding of class cultures and culture in general, which I think is true. Um, but that seems to lead him to not do that much with political economy, except weirdly during his high theoretic phase, um, where he does kind of like tie Freudianism, Freudianism into political economic movements. And as part of his analysis there, I mean, um, he says that the, the basis of human culture is social reproduction and economic factors. Right. but that they're also distinct, um, which is more than a lot of theoreticians of culture are willing to say. Yeah, so he very much sees them as almost a feedback loop where they are, you know, where the, in, like, when he, whenever he talks about this, particularly in his critique of, say, populism, he talks about populism degenerating from a kind of political economy to kind of follow the money into just basically conspiracy theories, which is why it's easy for nutters and racists to get into. Um, and in, in this, and then in these books, he talks about that explicitly. And now we've already talked about how he gets soft on this in late life. Um, and also defends the populists. Like, no, they weren't all just racist. <laughs> like, um, which I, which is interesting. Here he has some additional critiques, which are great. Like they were imperialist. Which is true. Right. They were imperialist. Um, and uh, or, or they were at least not actively anti-imperialist a lot of the time. And he points out that they, their ambig- ambivalence is about race, which he also points out in the socialist movement, too, is a point of weakness, a real one. Which, which is really interesting to me, as we've brought up a lot of times, when people go lash hair and folk socialism. Like, he really cared about... Um, the integration of black people into the general public, like a lot more than his interest in like yeoman artisan bourgeois culture would indicate. He's um, more favorable to black power than he is to the populist for most of his life. Yeah. Uh, he, he, he considered, he considers, even though he considers black power insufficient, um, he's actually super interested in black nationalism for kind of creating a collective political actor. Uh, and by that, we mean black cultural nationalism. But he also points out the problems with that in this book, too. Like, well, the other the, the comparisons being made here to p- people who have clear nation states to which they might belong away from this country and also have a prior national identity, the Irish, the Italians and the Jews, uh, particularly once Israel exists, um, which which you can't really do with black people and, you know, except for maybe Pan-Africanism, which itself also does not really have a huge appeal in Africa itself, although he doesn't talk about the latter part. Um, So I guess this gets gets us to, you know, in Agony, we start off, God, where does he start Agony? Right after the Civil War, basically, right? Um, And we trace through Agony... You know he's interested in a lot of different kinds of of the feminist movement. Um, he he does you know do a kind of mini. Well, no, this is more. In a, I I will admit 
because these three books parallel so much, I sometimes put uh, New Radicalism in America and the agony of the, of the American left in like one master narrative in my head. And I'm having to like make sure I don't do that right now. Because um, I'm like, there's people who he mentions, uh, Jane Adams and stuff, which come up in both books, but he does a lot more in New, Rad- uh, New Radicalism than he does yeah. in Agony. Um, I mean, this, the um, Agony is, uh, you know, it, it's got several parts. Um, and the main thing is first a history of the populist socialists and black nationalists, then uh, basically like kind of the subsumation and suppression of all these things into the cold war with the cultural cold war, a reflection on black power and cultural nationalism. And then uh, the revival of political controversy in the sixties, which is about the new left and uh, it's, successes and failures basically Um, right and and for people who know him from culture of narcissism uh although he gets more credit to the new left and culture of narcissism than people think one of the things i've actually gone back and reading and i'm like no he's really mad that they didn't listen to themselves like he's often citing the new left you know from from 65 against the, the, the remnants of the new left in 74 saying like they knew more in the sixties than these same people do now. Um, I mean, I I think one thing he really goes into, especially in world of nations is the fissure between cultural and political radicalism, which was united very, very temporarily. uh, He thinks in the period basically between 65 and 68 and then broke apart. Well, and I think that's true even in our hagiography of the 60s. So, like, somehow in our heads, the new left, the hippies, which are kind of a separate thing, although there's now kind of a counter movement to read them totally as reactionary, which I think is also wrong. Um, uh, kind of get merged in the American head also because it parallels what happens in France, right? And we have this, like, French model. He doesn't talk about this in this book, but it's something that we can kind of see from the vantage point of now is one of the ways the historiography of the 60s emerges is like, well, our 69 in America is like 60 May 68 in France, except it isn't at all. Um, but the cultural radicalism and the and the like political economic radicalism converged in both cases, right? Um, and it was because of students and students being the particular driving force and what he's interested in in agony of the American left is kind of showing particularly again, if you read it with new radicals in mind, I think is showing like, look, this is not new. And I think this is important for people to hear now because there's a tendency now to either God, there's a really dumb tendency to pretend that like the American left was super Marxist until like, 2018 and then it got infected with anarchists and totally fell apart and I'm like motherfucker were you alive in the 90s when the like I mean I know you weren't Elijah but like but a lot of these people talking when like the only left there was was like anarchists and a couple of weird Maoist groups and like the ISO well what these books are these books uh, that we're talking about today are very important because they're from the last time before like you know, 2010 or whatever, that the American left was vaguely Marxist. Right. Um, by and large. Um, and he, but he's tracing that what we tend to start 
with the new left as a like a lot of people now will sit will go back and say okay well it isn't like just anarchists coming in 2017 guys really it goes back to the new left like mac mcnair will do that sometimes it's like oh my the new left it's mixture of maoist anti-revisionism and anarchism and cultural laissez-faire led to yeah, the attitude about the relationship between the new left and the uh, co- contemporary left is, you know, first is farce, then is tragedy. Right. Whereas I think Lash actually pretty clearly illustrates in this book, no, this has been a tendency specifically in America going all the way back to the 1890s. Um, there are countervailing other tendencies, such as the black nationalist movement, the populist movement. And the socialist movement, which all have large class bases. Um, interestingly, one of the things he doesn't talk about in his critique, there's two things that actually interestingly don't come up in his critique of populism that I find fascinating that they don't. Um, one, he doesn't talk about William Jennings Bryant's conceding to the Democrats and what that meant. Um, he doesn't do that at all. And two, he doesn't really talk about he kind of hints at it, but he doesn't really talk about the disappearance of sharecropping as part of the reason why the populist party lost its base. And thus by the 1910s, really it's kind of, you know, you you have people who emerge out of it like Huey Long kind of, but it's really increasingly uh, becoming more and more paranoid because it's getting more and more into like a very vulgar understanding of, of follow the money analysis, which he points out and doesn't have a very rigorous understanding of culture, according to him. But then he doesn't really go into like, well, and also the sharecroppers disappeared. And that was like their, the, the other base. And then the workers went into the socialist movement for the most part, or they became Democrats, depending on whether or not they went with William Jennings Bryan or not. And he doesn't actually talk about that. So like, I do consider that a flaw in the book. But he does, you know, pretty clearly in New Radicalism in the first chapters of this book point out that, like, you have the emergence of this kind of rebellious but managerial section of intellectuals. We have to call them intellectuals. They're the children of the bourgeoisie, but they're not the bourgeoisie themselves. Um, and eventually they get tied into the academy. But in the er- in the late 19th and the early 20th century, that was not the case yet. Um they are more tied up into like the New York literary scene and they are primary drivers going all the way back. And he's kind of shows that like the only difference now in the sixties is one, the energy created by the end of the Eisenhower era with, with uh, the JFK election. And two, this mass base of students that's created after the GI bill. Um, and he seems very skeptical of all these multiversity theories of the students as a new revolutionary subject theories that's emerging in the new left. But it, he does pretty clearly trace that, like, no, this isn't, this isn't the first time this has happened. This is just the first time it's been mass. I don't know. It's if, had a mass to attach to. That, that's skeptical about it. He definitely gets more skeptical later. But he's also optimistic about the possibility of students to be a component of a new left politics. Um I, I think I think maybe we disagree. I think maybe we disagree on interpretation here because he's so critical of the educational apparatus which produces these students even this early. I mean, he I mean, like John Dewey is a person that like Christopher Lash hates. Yeah. Like, deep in his soul. I mean, right. I, I, just, I think mostly it's, it's just that like a lot of there's a lot of students 
they are very alienated. And he says that if they had harnessed that into more serious work, they could have been very compelling and very potent. Um, but unfortunately, they did not do that. Is ba- I mean, it's basically his take, I right. think. Well, um, it's interesting because he has a critique, like he has in the middle of World of Nations, his critique, of, well, not critique, his question, the open question that he doesn't completely answer about revolutions, right? And and he starts off reviewing a book, which is actually clearly, it clearly, I actually haven't read the book he's talking about. It's kind of a lost, not lost until you can't find it, but it's like not referenced ever anymore. Um, about like, clearly some Marxists being super excited about national liberationist movements and in the 60s, and he doesn't use this language. But I think he strongly implies that they're just like bourgeois national revolutions chill out and that they aren't actually the kind of insurrection that we have in mind from the 19th century either, um, because there's like agreements and geopolitics going on and that um, thus they can't really be something that it would make any sense to build out into in the United States or Europe, because not only are these areas are areas where they're, where like they're colonial states where in the periphery of the colonies where also state was just a state in general, either colonial or local is weak. And that can't be said to be true anywhere in the developed world in the 1960s. Um, and so like, okay, well then what we've noticed in these alternatives to liberalism that's emerging as revolution increasingly becomes metaphorical because we don't know how to deal with what we mean by like insurrectionarily overthrowing a government. Once you have post-World War II weapon systems, surveillance, uh, welfare state, et cetera. And he doesn't even think that all these things existence existence are bad. Like clearly he doesn't think the welfare existence is bad. It's just like, but what are you going to do when you like, like you're dealing with a nuclear armed government with, with major state power, the size of which was not even comprehensible you know, a century prior or 30 years prior. Right. Um, so, and so, you know, you have more revolutionary talk going on um, and less ability to even con- conceive of what it means. So that's one thing that comes up. Um, he also talks about how all these movements and so much that they still exist. Like he basically thinks the socialist movement and the, um, in the populist movement, you know, what little good of them is still existing by the 1930s, it gets swept up in um, the New Deal. Uh, I will point out one of the weaknesses I find in the agony of American left is he doesn't deal with the history of the of the Communist Party of the United States hardly at all. Um, and if you look at what actually happened to the SPA... Um, what destroys it is it is its inability to deal with um the Russian Revolution as much as anything else. And Lash had already written a book about that kind of, but he read, he'd written a book about the liberal response to that. He hadn't really written a book about like what that did to the socialist. Um, and he doesn't really deal with it in this book either, and that is a weak point, I think. Um, but. But he does, I think, still pretty much strongly indicate that, like, by the time you get to the 1930s, and he doesn't talk about the Popular Front at all in this either, but he basically proves it, 
that all these groups get sub, get subsumed into uh, FDR's New Deal coalition, and he does not like even if he thinks the New Deal ends is like a net benefit. He clearly is like it's it was designed to save a Brahmin class of hot bourgeoisie from you know the dangers of their own class existence, and it did and gave them some relevance to a bunch of working class people, but it also effectively kills the movement. So then we move over to the black nationalist movement. Right. And then he talks about like the problem with black power, which he clearly actually sees as one of the better left movements. I mean, I guess we do have to talk about his attitude towards feminism after, after the 1920s. <laughs> but, um, but he, he clearly seems to think that like, the black power movement itself doesn't really know what it wants. Like it's no longer really a nationalist movement or a cultural nationalist movement. It's, it's nominally kind of socialist, but not clearly. So it can't figure out like, do we consider black people part of the working class or some kind of surplus population to it? Like, if that's true, how is this not damaging the overall, like, so, you know, structure of socialist arguments and how do we deal with the fact that so many um, critics of the USSR in the, in the 1940s, who may have been good Marxist, you know, in the prior decade had all liquidated into, you know, things clearly run by the OSS and the CIA. And we say clearly because now we know they were, but it was even pretty obvious back then. Um, and so, you know, after that liquidation into, you know, the Congress for Cultural Freedom and Anti-Communism and also, you know, the progressive education system contributing so much to like the managerial state and the war state. What do you do? Because the two prior leftover things um, have been also incorporated. And then black nationalism has mutated into black power because, well, not a lot of black people actually think that there could have been a nation in the United States, which they could belong separate from the U S you know, which he's actually kind of right about. I mean, like one of the things I was interested to discover when I was, you know, um, reading about, um, the communist organization of the black community in the South is while the leadership was really into the black belt theory and, you know, you know, the kind of black belt, black nationalism, um, most of the rank and file black workers were not actually, there's not an evidence that it ever had strong black support in, in the common, even in the communist party, much less in the communist party um, affiliated unions and the, and the CIO and the T and the T U U L. So anyway, a lot, a lot of this is referencing the parts of the book. I didn't review, unfortunately before this, yeah, I'm just covering it all so we can now get to that part. So we get to the crisis of liberalism in the 60s. We get to the crisis of liberalism in the 60s. So um, in in this, uh, part of this is uh, intimately related to what you mentioned with the Black Power um, movement and Black nationalism, um, though Lash distinguishes that from the new left uh, and focuses on the new left as you know, in a couple of different renditions. So in Agony of the American Left, he focuses on the new left um, in the context of its attempt to take over of the Democratic Party. Right. And in the context of the student movement uh, and the free speech movement at Berkeley, especially. Um, and then in the world of nations, he focuses again on the student movement 
um, but also on the, you know, cultural revolution, cultural or what's it called? The, uh, the counterculture, um, the, he focuses on socialism, uh, in the form of Harrington's, you know, foundation of the, uh, DSA or its precursor, the precursor of the DSA. Yeah. But although in this time, it's not even that, like this is just Harrington trying to form a quote, left populist coalition to enter um, the McGovern campaign. And when that fails, he starts uh, the, the democratic socialist are not the democratic social Democrats of America or whatever the pre, the pre organization when the SP, so I think in the timeline of Harrington, when he's writing about this, and this isn't in the book, it's just stuff I know. This is right after Harrington and Shackman in the SPA formally, like the SPA is just disbanded. And it's before Harrington starts trying to form the precursor organization to the DSA or the other organization that emerges out of the ashes of the SPA. The SPUSA doesn't exist yet either. And also, as kind of background context, Lash was working with Barbara Ehrenreich and a few other people during this time period to start a workers' party, which, which doesn't go anywhere. And he doesn't write about it. One of the essays associated with it is In World of Nations. Right. Um, that calls for a more cultural politics, basically. Right. Um, you know, he wants to wage culture war. Um, I'm joking. Of course, he does not want to do that. Um he kind of does want to do it, actually. In the end of, but he wants it to be about um, about work and a reorientation right. of cultural questions to questions of work rather than questions of leisure. So it's a very different type of um, cultural politics and culture war than what we think of as culture war. Right. Um, it's not about religious questions or about um, or about like campus freedom or any of that. He thinks that like, okay, that's fine, but that's not really what we need to be here for, and the wrong focus of what a left politics should try to do. And I think he's also pretty critical of this cultural revolutionism slash uh, counterculture. And we have to say it because at this time period, these things kind of, even in some of their, their proponents and, and antagonist heads are almost the same thing. Like, cause like, for example, if you read uh slouching towards uh, Bethlehem, Bethlehem by Joan Didion, Joan Didion clearly sees the hippie counterculture and the anti-revisionist Maoist as like clearly related. So um, it was definitely in the zeitgeist of the time, even that they were related. Um, So I find that, I find that interesting. There's also an interesting thing in this, in this part of the book where Lash doesn't say this, but he kind of implies it that this movement is kind of cut off from, from where most Americans are like yeah. at the well, time. He identifies ahead. it as based in the student movement, which he says is distinguished. Um, it's distinguished in some ways for most Americans, but not in others. So it focuses on the ways in which it is distinguished, which is its temporary existence as a leisure class, mm-hmm. but it's not focused on the way it's not distinguished in that they're future workers. So the he future wants workers and about a good portion of them are also from workers is what he points out. To yeah. You. And a good portion of them are from, uh, you know, are GIs from, right. you know, Korea or whatever, um, especially in, uh, I guess not Korea. And it would be in the early sixties, maybe early sixties. It would have been Korea and the late sixties. It would have been Vietnam. 
Yeah. So there's, you know, these people have seen um, the, have seen American foreign policy intimately. Um, I think one thing that really interests me about this section, and we've talked about before, but I always want to talk about more is the way in which a lot of these um, essays explain a lot of the developments of the American left in our own time um, and repeat very exactingly a lot of the tendencies there, um, including in a temporary turn to Marxism, uh, activated in part by the election of a non uh, non-left wing, but inspiring political leader um, during a time of a new form of economic crisis uh, and or economic situation and resulting finally in an attempt to fail and a failed attempt to take over the Democratic Party with the result of fissure and a focus and retention only of a cultural separatism rather than a holistic political focus on reorienting American politics. Right. Um, One of the things that feels like that does oddly feel, I mean, there's even other parts of it that we can parallel. For example, uh, a one-term right-wing leader who uh, inspires a whole lot of, of, of hate, but also was kind of useful and dismantling parts of the American war apparatus. I mean, it's, it's like the amount of rhymes yeah. between the early seventies and now are creepy. Well, this is, this is one thing though, which is the biggest difference. And it's the thing that sticks with me and that I don't know what to do with. Mm-hmm. So, you know, let's think of this is focusing on two elections and the intervening space between them. 1968, and 1972. Right. Um, and in our own time, there's been two elections which have shaped the American left. Based, I mean, you know, there's way more because it's all history, but 2016 and 2020. And the big difference between the two of them. I would is, also say 2012. But... 2012. I mean, it's like been like a, you know, a right, whole yeah. A whole narrative, but these are the two that, like, a left uh, politician was active within the Democratic Party, basically. Correct. Yeah. Um, yeah. So sixty-eight and sixteen uh, have some interesting parallels in the sense of there's a movement by the Democratic Party to purposely uh, reduce the power of the left within the party. Um, Mm -hmm. It's done really overtly in 1968 because that can happen. Um, And in 2016, it's done less overtly and is less necessary in all honesty because Bernie was not as popular uh, or good at winning primaries as uh, Eugene McCarthy and Robert Kennedy were in comparison to Humphrey. I mean, it's it's a different it's a different animal on what the party is. But basically, you get a mainstream liberal who was defeated in a close election by a right-winger. But the difference, there's a pretty profound difference between the context of 72, where the new left continues organizing and takes over the party in the form of McGovern, or at least a subset of the new left does, um, and 2020, where the party is not taken over by the left. In fact, it it nominates uh, a centrist, and then the centrist wins 
And then, you know, in 1972, of course, Nixon cruises to an unbelievable victory uh, foretelling what would have been a strong right-wing turn in the uh, the early 70s that was eventually arrested only by Nixon's, uh, you know, own paranoia and failures to uh, recognize that he didn't really need to spy on the McGovern campaign at all. Um, and this, to me, is a pretty crucial difference, that in one instance, the period of left upswing is ended by a strong victory for the American right. And in the other, it's ended by a real, if not as vast victory for the American center. So one thing I think we have to contend with now that's different than then is counter-cyclic politics emerge in the 80s. Yeah. So... One of the things that comes after what we can call the long 70s, which, you know, is this period that Lash is writing about in the cultural narcissism up to the minimum self, um, is there's just a general – there's political chaos. I mean, how many one-term presidents do you have during this time period? Like, You have Johnson. You have uh, Ford. You have Carter. Yeah. Right. Uh, and Nixon doesn't get to fully serve a second term. So, like – you don't actually have a, a a you don't have eight years from uh, Eisenhower until Reagan, right? And and I think people under and this stabilizes where we only have one one term president in the intervening period for thirty whole years, and it's and even then it's probably because of a spoiler, frankly. Um, although it's hard to really understand exactly why, yeah, uh, George Bush Senior lost. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's so much going on there, but, um, to, but it's, it's a period until the Bush administration, until the end of the Bush administration really kind of cracks it of remarkable political consistency, even when parties change. So even when, um, you get eight year reprieve from what would have otherwise been like a straight Republican domination of of the executive. Um, uh, You, you do see a real crack. Like there, there's, there is a, especially in terms of monetary policy and foreign policy, but you do see real differences in domestic economic and social policy. Right. uh, That are not super broad, but are substantive. Domestic policy in what way? I actually, I, I actually find this very interesting because Between, uh, because I think, a lot uh, of the Reagan agenda is actually implemented by the Clinton administration. Oh, I was I was talking about between like Bush and Obama. Oh yeah, uh, no, no, no. I actually I do think there is. You're right there. So when we get to this first brick at the end of the Bush administration, where things really crack, uh, the Clinton does uh, have like minorly higher tax rates for. Yeah wealthy earners but that's not like that's not that much but he also guts welfare and well that's why i'm saying for clinton it's it's not really anything except you know uh safe legal and rare and um and gun control differences actually right those are not like again substantive but not substantial um but the, I mean, I would even say they're less substantive than 
than than even the Obama administration, where the where where in the Obama administration, you have a huge cultural domestic policy change on the orientation of a gay marriage, and like that happened. I was abroad when it happened, but the world when I left the United States in two thousand nine and the world when I came back in twenty seventeen were are were so fucking different on those on those fronts in particular. Yeah. Um, the basic point stands is that huge portions of the American political um, American political discussion were basically settled questions from Reagan until the end of Obama's tenure. Right. Well, I would actually say, though, Obama's where you do see some other shifts, but they're not done by the presidency. So there's massive change in monetary policy, massive change in monetary policy in the terms of of quantitative easing being picked a lot of this you see at the end of the Bush administration actually it's just the right. financial crisis right well, well I mean, the, people forget that Lindsey Graham called for the nationalization of America's banks right well this is what this is what I was actually going to point out it's it's forced on them kind of like covid forces the first things on both Trump and Biden when pe- when like i see uh, someone from i i've seen people from one side try to argue oh all the benefits for Trump um, and I'm not just talking like I've even heard some socialists make this argument. Um, and then I've heard from the other side, well, Biden's a neo progressive, but Trump isn't. And I'm like, they were both forced onto this with with from emergency, just like in 2006, 2007 and 2008. So what you have is the administrative state taking action, but the executive's kind of stable. Um, there is a dying back of American force during Obama in some ways and not others. So like you you actually see the acceleration of drone policy. Um you you see, you the see Libyan intervention, you see the Syrian intervention, you right. see the churches, but you do see the troops leave Iraq. But you also see basically the what you see is um in so much that the poverty draft was ever a thing, it was a thing in the late Bush administration. Um and that has ended because it's politically a liability. So, so you, you, there's this big push to automate, to automate the military. That's so, you, so in that sense, it's different. Um, and the other thing that we have to point out in a way, and, and maybe this is hard for people to understand, we think about the post-war consensus that's lasting a very long time. But that's only because we didn't live through it. It's actually really fucking short. It lasts from 1947 to 1963, right? It's it, that's not even 20 years. Um, the neoliberal consensus lasts for almost a full 30 years, and 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 in some ways, is if you look at when it really begins, which is actually, you know the the Ford Carter transition um to when it is in what it's currently in which is some new form but it hasn't totally gone away um which is right now um and it might not go away i don't know um it, it's like pretty clear that it's it's definitely happening from 1976 until 2008 basically right. But but we don't have what is not clear is unlike after unlike 1976, like 
the interim period between the the post-war consensus and the new and a new government is only like seven, eight years. Right? I mean, a new form of managing capital, not a new there's all kinds of new governments, but is like seven or eight years. This one now, this interim period has now gone on for 15, like almost 15 years. Um, like you have lived what, like more of your life in this interim period than not. Um, and I say interim as if we know that this is ending and going into something else. Maybe this is a new period, but it's not clear what this is. We'll, we'll know in about 10 years. Hopefully. Right. Um, I mean, to be fair, like people started realizing what neoliberalism really was after it had been around for 20 years almost. Yeah, so, like, so, I mean, I think that a lot of this, a lot, well, a lot of what happens is that um, there's a shift in a lot of the political bases associated with these, these different forms of ancient capital, mm-hmm. which is much more rapid from Fordism into neoliberalism. Because all of the, like, so much of the construction takes place under Fordism. So what I mean by this is, like, that's when the highways get built. That's when the suburbs get made. Um, After, in the period from, like, roughly 1945 until 2000, 80% of America's built structures are constructed. And most of those, the groundwork is laying in, like, the Fordist period because that's when the highways are being made. That's when... Uh, home policies, expanding the construction of single-family homes. And so you create the new political basis of American politics, which is a suburban majority that nobody foresees coming and winds up voting for the right wing. Um, And now in our own period, that's a much more... it's a much it's much less clear that there's a suburban-exurban divide. There's different subsets within the suburbs as housing, you know, Christ, housing needs have shifted people away from um, these core suburbs. And uh, all of this is to say that, like, you're rapidly changing the composition of the, the material composition of the American voting base in the, um, in the Fordist period in a way that's much less rapid in the neoliberal period. And so I think that stretches out changes in uh in their response um, and in the, you know, the politics you see associated with that. I would, I would agree with that. And, and that has led to like in the late sixties, a consensus that the liberal consensus is over, although it's a different liberal consensus now than it was in the sixties. Like that liberal consensus was Fordism, um, Fordism in America, uh, weak social democracy in Europe. Um, a kind of Britain Woods Keynesian run transatlantic integrated superstate. Um, now the transatlantic superstate thing that that's been that's still kind of true. It's it like it was weakening at the end of the Obama Trump era, but this current situation in Russia has definitely reintegrated that. There's been a couple uh, of times when it's weekend, but. Uh, which are very like, for example, in the late '90s, uh, when Japan and Germany were out competing American like American companies. So, uh, or no, when America was starting to outcompete German and Japanese companies, right. and so they needed to uh, you know switch that up and outsource jobs and do asset bubbles instead to tie them together. And then when Trump just like kind of 
pissed off every leader in the, you know, in the American sphere. And so they need to do a diplomatic blitz and then do Ukraine. I mean, they didn't do Ukraine, but Ukraine happened. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, it's proved remarkably resilient despite economic and diplomatic and military pressures. Yeah. I mean, even with like, even with France threatening to go rogue all the time since like Iraq war one, um, it, it is, it is maintained. And and that is something that's very interesting. So, on one hand, you have something that looks a lot like the 60s. On another hand, as we've stated, let's talk about some other differences. One, um, students are in decline, not expanding, both in, both in like, there's no baby boom. Um, and... Uh, the size of the millennial generation was maintained largely through immigration, um, which sig- significantly changed the, the both the racial and, frankly, religious layout of the country. And it lends itself to a different politics and different tension points. Right. Um, there, another major difference is... Um, I think people need to understand while the multiversity that Lash is writing about, man, I had to look that up. I was like, who used that word? I've never fucking heard. Um, was talking about, you know, he's not, he's making fun of that concept, but he's talking about this increasing use of the university for so many different social functions, which he's right is only going to get more intense and we're just going to replay over and over it's again. Still, I mean, it's still true. Just nobody thinks it's significant anymore. They're right. just like, oh, this is the way it works. Um, the, one of the things though, that's really changed is, uh, the zoomer generation, your generation is actually quite small and there will be no immigration relief for its size. Um, uh, at least not if either party has anything to do with it under current conditions. Yeah. That's the Um, reason actually we're so strict on, uh, no age gap relationships. It's self-preservation. (laughs) um sure uh the it's also a a generation that's relationship to an american identity and dream of any sort left wing or right wing is highly fractured um and I, i say this as a teacher because you know, we talk about the fragmentation of pop culture and all that that really begins in the in the in the early two thousands. Um, but there is a a high fragmentation of American identity beyond racial grounds um, that makes talking about American politics now kind of difficult. So, so for example, when we talk about left wing attitudes towards toward in like Generation Z, there are some things which I I think everything bears it out. There are other things where I'm like, but the meaning of left wing has changed. That's mostly been because in generation C has moved further left, but not on everything. And many of these things are contested. Um, and so with your generation, for example, uh, not identifying with conservatism may not mean the same thing as it has in the past. Um, because frankly, no one wants to fucking identify with conservatism under probably 45. Like, um, 
that does not like eat, but like it doesn't mean there isn't a right wing. It doesn't mean they're still reactionary. Like, in fact, they're probably, uh, you know, like um, they have like Twitter, Twitter names, which are like Harry Bird and Joyer, you know, right. like. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I think we can, you know, the most dramatic thing was like a, a tiny sliver of the population becoming the alt-right, which, which who's, but there is this kind of right wing movement in the United States, which is further right than has been common. There's since- a good example of this on like uh-huh. most major issues, but a good example is abortion where the people who most want abortion to be totally banned are young anti-abortion people mm-hmm. who are also this, us like the tiniest subset of the anti-abortion movement. Um, so it's just that the youth are like, if they're, you know, sickos already, they're real sickos. Yeah, I mean, and this is also true with like racialism, where like when I was coming up, low key racialism was everywhere, but explicit racialism was for like wash generation weirdos. Yeah, and, and now, now people are like, you know, they're like, "What's your haplogroup group or whatever?" Right, and now it's like, for example, all the racial nationalists in the '90s and aughts hid. They use code words like human biodiversity or something. You know, they would borrow words from the left even to hide themselves, um, except for like out and out super Nazis. But those people are really, really, were really, 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 really rare. Um, uh, I mean, the the clan had declined significantly from the 80s into the 90s, like when I was growing up. Um now, you know, these movements are much more out in the open, much, you know, uh, I still think they're, they're probably smaller. They're tiny. The they're just they're, more vocal and more willing to be vocal in part because of anonymity and in part because the Republican Party is more receptive to them, frankly. Right. And well, I'm just saying, like, there's so many talking points that used to be far right talking points that you would you hear know, like, like mainstream right wing. Yeah. Points. Like the Republican Party has gone is not a uh, cooperative participant in maintaining American capitalism in the way, you know, under in, in terms of neoliberalism. Basically. Yeah. I saw someone like take uh, Ron DeSantis quotes and David do quotes and put them side by side. It was kind of eerie. Um, I mean, they're like big cultural stuff now is like banning books and like arresting teachers practically like, yeah. or not, you know, that that might be a little over the top, but not much. Like, no, and like out and out lying on like, like uh, about cultural things. It's and and outside of Florida, it doesn't have a lot of pool. Although, as I will say, and I've said many times, and this is something that we talked about, but it was not true when Lash was writing. We do have a counter secular independent majority and what i mean by that is there's a group of people who in the past would have been centrist are are centrist independents they might not have identified with the party those people now seem to radically shift politics against whatever's happening in the white house um and so during a trump administration a lot of them are radically anti-trump and then those same people are people adjacent to the same people. It's like the same areas of the country, at least will become radically anti-Biden too. Um, 
And even if it's not literally the same person, it's like in the same regions of the country. Now, interestingly, right now, for example, the Supreme Court seemed to have bought that off. So it happened after the midterms this time instead of during. Um, but that's predictable. But that actually and why I talk about that, that's like a two generation trend um, that really kind of starts with Generation X um, becoming a voting. Well, with uh, with Generation X and younger baby boomers becoming a voting age in the 80s um, uh, and has been maintained since then. And uh, it's probably Generation X is driving a lot of the flip flopping, frankly. They're the most conservative generation. Right. By a lot. But um, and and as I've argued with people, and it makes sense that they are, if you kind of think about it, like they, they came th- under under Reagan at a time when Reaganism appeared to be working. Right. Uh, and and they do not like the cultural turn um, because their left in so much that existed was a was a cult, which a cultural libertine left. It was kind of a descendant and a kind of right wing descendant in some ways of the counterculture. Um, and, um, and, you know, uh, while yes, the 90s campus wars had complaints about political correctness, most even left wing people would complain about that. That was like an uptight centrist thing. Um, I mean, I, I do remember growing up in the 90s, it was like super common to to complain about. But one of the things that I have seen now, I mean, also like the left wing politics they grew up under. It wasn't just Reaganism. Like it, it, it's it's also Clinton to Obama where like the, the left doesn't change anything anyway. Um, actual change seems to come from the right almost always. Um, and, uh, I think that's, that, that explains a lot. Plus the fall of the Soviet Union, plus, you know, um, the, the, plus like Europe's left wing looking so neoliberal too. They just, it really did seem like, oh, there is no other way for that generation. Um, and then they they really come into power under Bush, right? So, you know, they're 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 products of a right wing council culture on culture war, and so that's that's different too. Like the generational divides for all that we think about the sixties is like there's a huge divide in generations, and there was if you went to college, um, it. It was not, interestingly, it was perceived as endemic in society, but like the work of Rick Perlstein, et cetera, actually makes it pretty clear that like, we're just over-focusing on the 20% that went to college. Like, yeah. Yeah. Whereas, I just like to point this out when they're like, oh, it's a minority of people who have school degrees. I'm like, if you're under 40 you are 60% likely to at least have an associate's degree level of education. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's another big difference is that, uh, and that is one of the, one of the differences between the Reagan and Bush and Clinton as Clinton pushed a massive expansion in the number of people who went to college through like, you know, student loan programs, basically. I mean, that started under uh, Johnson, but Clinton 
you know, really used a lot of it. And a lot That's of home when it really accelerates. And then all the other forms of aid fall away too. So like the, the pale grant hasn't had like, I think the pale grant cutoff has been $50,000 now for like 40 fucking years. Um, um, home ownership is another form of aid, which never goes away basically, but it's, you know, it's going away though. It, yeah, it is going away. Um, which, I mean, we are becoming a lot more like continental Europe in our home prices and availability. So, um, yeah. Um, well, that's that's one reason why the generation gap is so intense, though, in purely the UK and the US and not continental Europe, is that, uh, first of all, two-party system um, in both, you know, both the UK and the US, but not most of Europe. Uh and then also, um, there's a much stronger generation gap in terms of wealth and income, though that's also going to go away when, uh, you know, the great passing on of the boomer wealth occurs over the next, you know, 20 years. Um, well, here's the thing, though. One of the things that complicates that and the firm pointed out to me is a lot of the boomer wealth is gone. So uh, so what I mean by that, like, like we started seeing millennials get their inheritance in the last 10 years. And that's led to some fragmentation amongst millennials, but it's been less than even I thought because a lot of the baby boomers lived so much longer that they really have exhausted a lot of their, their wealth. And there's, yeah, there's definitely some of that. There's, there was a New York times piece that came out tracking this like a month ago or two. Mm-hmm which was really interesting. And basically what it said is mostly the boomers are still alive and there's a serious, um, most of the wealth is concentrated as you'd expect in a tiny minority of the boomers, but it's a lot of money basically. Well, yeah. So, so there, there, there is kind of the children of the bleach, so bleach who are just going to get richer when their grandparents die. Um, but it's the like one of the interesting things about the trends amongst the boomers is before 2007 boomer wealth was actually fairly not evenly distributed that's crazy but it was not as unequal as the other generations had experienced it including gen x um and one of the things that happened and the boomers you know after 2007 is like they start seeing more and more of the inequality of themselves too but they're already so old so they're in they're in a better state in some degree, unless they're poor already, to weather it. Though but I, if they're also the recipients of the last major expansion of the American welfare state. Right. Well, well and this is the other thing. Like this is even true in Britain when you know people are like, Oh, well, why are you whining about sixteen percent homeowner thing? We did seventeen percent. And I'm like, Yeah, but houses cost like one a hundredth in Britain of what they do now. Yeah. Um, with, and I hate to explain to you, 3% of a large number can be more than 16% of a small number. Um, but, and that's also true here. Like, like, for example, we never hit the kind of height of the eighties and nineties, um, uh, interest rates that the UK did, but, uh, you know, a lot of our parents, like my, like, we'll talk about, well, when I first got my house, I had a 9% mortgage and you're not that high and i'm like yeah but your house was literally fifty thousand dollars 
in this house now is five hundred thousand dollars. Like, that's a huge like difference. And like, I I hate to tell you that even with high, even with high inflation, that does not bear that out. Now, so for all the superficial similarities that we see in Lash, I guess we've now spent a good half an hour saying like, there's a lot of deep things that aren't the yeah. same. Well, it's there are new that well for me that's that's the strange thing is the economic conditions and the political conditions are so different now so why is it that it still sounds the same when we talk about the left well we've basically seen four cycles in the 20th century to the early 21st century of a left trying to take over the democratic party. And the first one is the one that's hardest to justify. That's the populist and William Jennings Bryant moving from the pop, the people's party into the democratic party when the democratic party then clearly is a reactionary post-civil war party of a hodgepodge bunch of interest, most of which are not in the interest of sharecroppers. Um, and so that way, and we tend to read William Jennings Bryan's concession there as well. well yeah, but that's what we always done. We've always entered. And I'm like, no, we didn't. But but when people like aha coincides with the uh, like purging of the like AFL right in the, in the 1890s, like which is and Lash mentions in here like, uh, buddy, there's no coming back from that one. Like, right. like that, that was really bad um, for socialism in the U.S. So so then you have the consolidation under and Lash doesn't call it this, but that's what it was. The left in the socialist movement and then the popular front with the communist movement with the Democrats in the 40s, which still only makes sense in the terms of kind of the new deal and the world war two coalition. Like that's the only way that really makes sense. You have in between like a, I wouldn't call them left, but certainly like a way of changing the Democrats from being a purely reactionary party with the ascent of the progressive movement in both parties. Right. So say, but the progressive movement was bipartisan. So it was an attempt to realign both parties. Yeah. And it succeeded. Um, temporarily, uh, and but yeah, then so by the time you have the popular front, I just wanted to say like the Democratic Party is no longer purely reactionary. Is no, the no point. I'm no, I, I think the 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 thing about and it's also interesting. I think Michael Lynn points this out, and I don't love Michael Lynn's politics, but he's not wrong about this. Like the Republican coalition until the basically until basically the Bush administration almost it is. Although it starts to change, and I think Lash writes about this when it does start to change. It starts to change in the, in the 80s. But the Republican really is a bourgeois party. And when the bourgeois is progressive, it's progressive. And the bourgeois is not progressive, it's not progressive. Like, um, it, And it kind of falls initially kind of on the lines you'd expect in Marxism, right? Like, like when the bourgeois are fighting the more reactionary South, there you go. Uh, and it's, you know... It's hard to explain people to people like Americans, even though they'll go, well, you know, before the 60s, the parties were were are before FDR, the parties were opposite or before the 60s, the parties were opposite. You hope both. And I'm like, no, but that's not really true either. Like before, before 
I mean, the big dream in the 60s of a lot of liberals, and I'm talking mainstream liberals, was to make the parties correspond to ideology. Because right. before that, it was just like kind of vibes. Yeah, um, no, it, it, was, it was regional vibes and regional interests and kind of like Southern interests, whether they were progressive or regressive, were in the Democratic Party. Which at the state level, I might add, did not end till the year 2000. Like, like th- that process, you know, people talk about Nixon and the Southern strategy or whatever, but that process is not consolidated till George Bush, which I think people Even don't after. know. I mean, like Obama's, the senators voting for the Affordable Care Act or voting against it. It's all like Louisiana. Uh, you know, we're in uh, this year there's a democratic governor of Louisiana who's like a good old boy, basically who is anti-abortion and anti-gun control. Who yeah. Yeah. Is the, the, it's the last gasp of the Dixiecrats, but they yeah, for the so, most part have been dead for since for about 20 years. Absolutely. It's just that there's like a long tail to these things. Yeah, and it would be Louisiana. I mean, Louisiana and Mississippi's were like the most backwards, but I mean, it, it's, it is interesting because also it explains a little bit what like if like if you deal with Republicans in the West, they can be kind of reactionary and a libertarian bent, but you don't see Ron DeSantis shit out here. You just no. don't. Um, you it, you might see it from a from like individual state like Congress people, but there's not a Western governor who's picked up that kind of uh uh talking points of coalition. Um, so I think that's interesting um, on a lot of levels. I suppose um, we should uh, kind of pivot back to the, to the lash pieces, but I'm going to do that. And episode two. Thank you for supporting Varmblog. If you would like more, you can find our stream on YouTube under my name, C. Derek Varn. You can also find us on Patreon, where you can subscribe for early audio access, additional shows, unexpurged audios. Q&As with me on video and other perks, such as access to our archives, etc. There are three levels of support. One level even gets you on Patreon shows. Occasionally here you will hear shows done with other creators. I hope you enjoy them. We'd like to thank our producer, Paul Channel Strip, and Bitter Lake and Jason Miles for making our intro and exit music. And thank you for all you do. If you can't support us financially, you can support us by leaving a review on iTunes or your pod catcher of choice. Have a great evening.